Hej och välkomna till Wag the Dog, en idrottspodd med motivation och talang. Och jag är med, med Magnus Lindvall och själv heter jag Johan Falby. Och idag var också en eminent gäst som vanligt med oss. Det handlar om idrott, det vet ni. Det handlar om motivation och det handlar om talang. And welcome to Wag the Dog pod. And we're sitting here in Stockholm. We arrived from a very nice conference where we had some fantastic speakers. And one of them is sitting here tonight. Amanda Visek. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Probably most identify as being a scientist practitioner. My graduate training, my doctoral training was primarily in applied sports psychology. I work in a school of public health at George Washington. So my research really looks at innovative ways to address issues of public health relevance. Very early on in my career, started to create a niche in the youth sports space. And for me, I think what is most concerning is children's attrition from organized youth sport. As someone who loves sport, pursued a doctoral degree in sports psychology, my big objective is how do we keep more kids in the game. In the game. Yeah. 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 Did you do any sports yourself? I did. I started off uh, at a very young age playing outside, so a lot of free play, and then played organized little league, so baseball, then matriculated into gymnastics and figure skating, and then eventually gave up gymnastics in order to train more on the ice. We're going to talk about fun enjoyment today later on in the more meaty part of the pod. Absolutely. It's it's going to be interesting. Uh, you say that you're a science practitioner. So in, in one way, you're like a hybrid of me and Johan. You're yeah. like the best world of me and Johan together, yeah. more or less, because I am the scientist <laughs> and Johan is the practitioner. So it's going to be fun to see how the combination of me and Johan sounds like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna yeah. get to that later on in the media part, i don't know I if i want to see that actually <laughs> <laughs> sounds like i sort of get an image of frankenstein's monsters over here so let's stay away from that, that image keep the track keep of the your track, topic yeah. now come on is the collective more attractive than, than each singular right <laughs> hopefully <laughs> we should 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 make a disclaimer here just before we start our demon producer the guy behind the pod jamie is not here today so this is our first pod we do without Jamie yeah. in the room. On so your be, own. Yeah, on our own. Free spirits. Free spirits. So it's going to be interesting <laughs> to see how this is going to work out. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, topics. We usually start with a with, uh, topic each year and um, I thought about something that I saw. I saw something in the paper today about a study in school about um, pulse-based exercise training and they they claimed it has some effect they tried it in a school in sweden and of course this comes from my own areas is an exercise psychology and cognition but i work mostly on older people did studies on oh, that okay. okay so this is basically coming from well so like the 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 project of the naperville school in in the chicago in illinois in the u.s yeah. where, where they tried this idea of pulse-based exercise And so if, if kids were doing better in school, if they had an effect on cognition, okay. if they did pulse-based uh, training and before school. And, and it actually it kicked, kicked on, so, so people used it in Sweden as well. What is pulse-based? So basically pulse-based is like, well, you, you, get, you get the kids uh, running and do some exercise, yeah. so you get the pulse up. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. pulse-based. Like in Sweden okay. it's pulse-based, but I wouldn't say that in English. It's a bad translation, obviously. 
Okay. But heartbeat yeah, training. Heart, heartbeat training is something cool. Yeah. So it just became so like like a big thing here. Okay. And of course, the science is I would say quite quite robust. We don't have as close as many studies as we do have on older adults on the effect of exercise on cognition on kids. Uh, we don't have that many studies, but it looks promising so far. So right. so far so good. But what I thought about, like from a motivational standpoint, if someone introduced this in a school we're going to do this exercise before classes start sure and we have some idea that's going to be effective uh from an stt self-determination theory yeah. or motivational standpoint how how sustainable is these kind of programs for some kids that's just the ideas i had from a motivational standpoint that yeah. actually because from a point it's mandatory you force it's mandatory. Okay, so all up kids on have all to kids. Engage. Yeah, okay. as I understand it. So from that perspective, how sustainable is it? Do and what's the what's the context? Is it like between classes or subjects, or is it? Um, I, th- I think often it's school? just just before school. Okay. Yeah, I think this is uh, right up uh, yeah. what you are talking about. I mean, if you make the exercises fun, then I think, and we we're gonna. Like yeah. define fun later on, right, I guess, right, in, in right. the meaty part. But but if you make it fun, I mean, I think it's quite easy to make kids uh, move and run and jump and skip. We're born to move, right, as yeah. human beings. Um, technology has sort of engineered a lot of that out of our lives. So in terms of a like a pulse exercise sort of thing that's done before school or after school or in between subjects it really doesn't matter from a motivational standpoint right it has to be it has to be fun Mm. right so you're talking about fostering that intrinsic form of motivation in terms of self-determination theory from that theoretical perspective um you know when you're talking about the various behavioral regulations right with extrinsic motivation Right. So for some of the kids, maybe they don't have, you know, as much of a a history with being active. Right. So it's probably inherently at first probably not going to be that fun. Um, So what can yeah, yeah. what can you do to to sort of motivate them? And that's the key point, I think, because those that already are moving will probably. okay, this is fun. This is what I usually do. And but those that aren't motivated, uh, then you need something extra. Uh, to make them motivated well i think the key aspect is what kind of motivation actually drives the behavior for some kids it would surely be more self-determined like intrinsic motivation and stuff sure. because they like it and they think it's, it's, it's nice for them right. and they think it's good and they feel competence but for some kids it will be in best scenario some kind of controlled motivation behind mm-hmm. it i will do it because i have to or because i will feel better afterwards or whatever so right. the question is will that be sustainable for these st- these kids in the long run and i I just, of course, as an exercise psychologist, I like the idea of mm-hmm. kids moving in school. Right, <laughs> Obviously, right. as such, I like the idea. I have a hard time criticizing this because I try to get the message out myself. Right. But on the other hand, the, the motivational research in me is so like, wait a minute, is this a sustainable way or try to force in kids? Because basically, you put all the kids on the treadmill. And, and right. how fun, it, how fun right. is that for some of them? And I think that you guys, you're working with this. And what about the, the, the um, teachers? Mm-hmm. What's their take on it? Some of the teachers will say, oh, no, another thing we have to do with the kids. Uh, and how motivated <laughs> will they be? And how, how right. high impact right. will the teachers have on the kids? I mean, I think part of that is, you know, obviously whatever training goes into the, the teachers being able to engage the kids. 
um, the teachers having buy-in as well, right? That this is a positive thing, not only for the children, but for their academics and everything sort of comes full circle, right? With, with academic achievement and physical activity. So it's interesting, right? Because programs like that, you could probably correlate them fairly similarly to physical education. I don't know if you guys have the same sort of concept in in Sweden. Yeah, in we do of, roughly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I, yeah. So, you know, for some kids, right, movement and activity and sport or some form of structured exercise is enjoyable and for others it's not. Mm-hmm. So figuring out a way in terms of the way the the program is structured to engage the kids that are going to be more likely to not inherently enjoy or be inclined to that Mm. i think the key thing is is really there's this concept too of uh what's called like behavioral economics right and how how physical activity or exercise or anything really is framed and i think a big part of it is going to be how the teachers and how the school itself Mm. as a program frames that type of program for children is it supposed to be something that they are expected to have fun and to enjoy and be involved in or is it something that's sort of like this mandatory thing that all kids have to do yeah um and you don't have really i mean do they have choices in terms of autonomy do they are they provided with choices or right. is it like one solution for everyone? Uh, right. It all goes down to the logistic of the program. What what can you actually right. do within the frame? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very much pro these types of programs, right. obviously. But on the other hand, the key question is still how can we do it? How can we set it up? As you mentioned, the key concept of nudging. How can we set it up in the best possible way right. for as many kids as possible to have as much gasoline in the motivational tank as, right. as possible in the right. long run. Yeah. So, so implementation and framing is key yeah. around programs like that, for sure. So to conclude, it's a good start, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see the, the evaluation of it. And uh, and uh, also, they probably need to do both educa- education for the teachers and also implement a program that is enjoyable for the kids. Yep. And that takes us to a totally different topic I'm out doing talks in in uh, yeah in all of Sweden or Scandinavia, and uh, when I tell that okay, this is what research and evidence mm-hmm. probably suggests. This is the best edu- educated guess we have today. There is almost always, or behind your back, you can hear that. Uh, but you know, I know this guy or this girl. She did this and. That's absolutely not what research suggests, mm-hmm. anecdotal evidence. So uh, you guys, you're researchers and out there working. And what, what's the best thing to tell those arguments about anecdotal evidence uh, that you encounter when you meet people out in the pitch, on the pitch or in the sporting arena somewhere? Well, I think I pass, pass the puck. Uh, further on to the science science practitioner ones because I'm just a scientist. I'm normally not out meeting meeting normal people in the real world. So I think I send the puck further on to you, Amanda, who actually meet coaches and right. you meet people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like an, I'm a hermit here, but yeah, Magnus are, is stuck do in they a exist lab somewhere, right, with his little test tubes and self determination theory. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. What, what's what's your best arguments then? I think for me, I, I always come back to I'll pose the question back to them. You know, what what is what is what does the science say? What does the data say about this? It's okay to have a hunch and have a, a feeling or a thought about what may be factual or true, but until we have the data to support that, why not follow the evidence that that shows us what works versus mm. a feeling? But then, yeah. then you talk, for example, about sampling in young ages and so on. And of course, there are some good data and mm -hmm. some evidence, but it's not black and white. We can only give the, the, the athletes or the coaches educated guesses. And immediately they take that <laughs> that way out and, ah, well, I know. And I'm a little bit better than the other coaches. So oh, I yeah, can, they do. you yeah. know. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? For me, I, you know, in our area of research, I really go back to what data we have and what it says and hit home the generalizability of that and how maybe their team um, or their circumstance is really not all that different from, you know, the data that we have that supports it in this particular way. And I, I think with coaches that are like that, part of, I think, the solution to getting them to come around or maybe start to think a little bit differently, you're really only going to plant a seed, right? You're not going to turn someone completely over in a moment no um but it's posing the question back to them that gets them thinking about and questioning their approach or their tactics and getting them to then try and justify why that would be appropriate or why that would be the best way what's the most common like comments you get for people who being like skeptical of, of the things you say like coaches of our or research? parents yeah yeah when you go out having talks with coaches <clears throat> and parents and stuff what's the most like common points of criticism so one of the things that stands out the most um with our data is even ha even after having um really taken them through all of the data shown them how to read the fun maps looked at sort of the follow-up studies on that as well sometimes it's not all coaches, but it's a few, you know, in a large audience that will raise their hand and say, yeah, but. And a lot of what they tend to push back on are stereotypes and assumptions that are just a part of our cultural and, and social norm that the data hasn't and still doesn't support. Um, so for me, I really go back to driving home what the data says and that tends to be really helpful right so anytime you can back up what you're saying with data also tends to shut people down um, in terms of starting to open their frame of mind mm. to accept what science has to say i like that way and, and science isn't right or wrong at all instances some things we can say the the earth is round like <laughs> we know that but if you go just a few hundred years back then they thought it wasn't round this so, is I mean, so uh, funny because so, i use this exact yeah. analogy yesterday yeah, okay. <laughs> when working uh, with swedish ice hockey right yeah. but that's science yeah. going forward and, and what uh, is, yeah and 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 uh, 
for example, talent development is a yeah. is a lot more complex than just concluding that sure. okay the earth is round so right. there's a lot of factors and there's a lot of things and there's a not, lot of educated guesses and some few facts Sh- we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that sure. and then you have to make them think but it takes so long time i think <laughs> well part <laughs> of part of that complexity i think <laughs> yeah. is that we're we're dealing with human beings mm. um and while we have theory and and various conceptual frameworks and things that help us understand human behavior There are anomalies, right, and, and things that sort of don't fit a lot of the times. Um, and human behavior is very, very complex. And I think that is what keeps Magnus and I in a job. <laughs> Thank <laughs> right? heaven for complexity. <laughs> <laughs> um, whereas other types of science, be it, you know, the, the shape of the world or astronomy or things like that or far more concrete than talking about high quality sport experiences or motivation which is very people can't touch like it like literally touch motivation or literally touch fun or enjoyment it's this sort of emotive affective experience right whereas you can see a star or a shooting star or the sun or look at um satellite pictures of the earth to know that it is round yeah. and not flat right <laughs> um so I, you know i think that's that's part of it for yeah. sure this is a good point i mean there's no right or wrong in science on the other hand some scientists are often right and others often wrong that's right magnus right yeah that's right see that, we're over here on the science so we're side, on the science yeah. side. <laughs> <laughs> and that takes us to topic number three Coming from my research and a lot of the um, the discussions that I had yesterday um, around girls' participation in sport and what our data show us about girls and that girls and boys really are looking for the exact same things when it comes to fun. Um, And that's usually, that gets, you know, you share that data in coaching clinics and things like that or, you know, parent education workshops and you get the, (gasps) but it's so funny because when you look at the faces of particularly women, right, or or young women and girls in the audience and they are shaking their head like, yeah, right? (laughs) But why do our coaches treat us so differently from the boys? And so I I think I'm interested to know more about what that's like in in Sweden um, in the youth sport context. And I did also some evaluation of of the Olympic Games and and the elite athletes in Sweden and looking at personality, looking at, yeah. you know, stress and how important motivation and everything. Right. And then there are no differences. There are no right. differences. And uh, I'm I'm not very surprised that you came up with this in your research either. Yeah. I think it's uh, I think it's just like you said uh, in, in the speech earlier today that um, culture norms and yeah. the way you look at boys and girls and how it's supposed to be in some right. ways. Right. I actually thought that women are from Mars and men are from Pluto or whatever. Venus. 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 Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> then again, they could have the same. They could have the same idea what's fun, even though they are from different planets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, right. The author Gray might 
even though he's absolutely wrong dead on. He might be right in different areas, you never know. But I mean, I think, I think it's a really, really interesting point there that we still have this, I mean, 2018, we still have these stereotypes of what boys and girls should enjoy right. and like most. That right. We tend to treat them like uh, a different way. Yeah. Even though we should know when probably people do know better yeah. to some extent, but still it's the difference between knowing and doing yeah. I, I mean, part of that with the cultural and social norms, sex stereotypes and things like that, there's there's a part of that that we are consciously aware of. And I think that there's a lot of it that people do and act in particular ways that they're just unconsciously aware of that reinforce those things. Hmm. So, And I it think, starts when you're yeah. coming home from, from the hospital with the kid in your arm like this. Uh, Blue, blue clothes, pink clothes, yeah. and it starts already, uh, I think. so. And from there it builds on uh, how you treat the it's kids so and the babies. It's so interesting, though, yeah. because as a young girl and an athlete growing up, I detested the color pink. I, I didn't like it. Oh. In part because I associated it with people thinking less of girls or that girls were only supposed to be these like ultra feminine um fragile beings as like as a child i'd associated that color with that and then growing up um it wasn't associated for me with being strong and athletic and that sort of thing and i think it's it's interesting because it's only probably in my early adulthood um, where I have found a way for those things to coexist and that you can yeah. be pink or wear pink and still be, you know. But I, I think at a very early age, I was very aware of of what those sex stereotypes were. Yeah. I mean, so, one one uh, one aspect is how to do how to do it better how to yeah. make people aware and i think one aspect we we discussed with sean Cote about ob- observational instruments mm-hmm. and make coaches and parents aware is also to observe their behavior and to let them be aware of their behavior right so observations observational tools and science and yeah. practice i think is, is a really valuable tool when it comes to changing stereotypes as well mm-hmm. very very true and uh, coaching clinics and everything yeah. i think it's really important to put it out there that uh, girls want to be good as well <laughs> they're not there only for their friends and absolutely not like, it's the same thing yeah so there are and uh, that's also um, very important to know uh, if you want to be good then uh, i mean th- it's the same driving forces for men and women all the way through absolutely You talked about fun maps. Yeah. Can you give us the background about fun maps and, and kids having yeah. fun in sports? Yeah, right. So the number one reason why kids play is because it's fun. Number one reason why they drop out is because it's not fun. Other than that, until now, we knew nothing else about fun, right? So if I'm a coach and I want to retain my players or I'm a league administrator and I'm looking at participation, registration, um, and I see that I have fewer numbers this year than I had last year and so on and so on, 
right? Retention becomes a big issue and challenge. As an athlete, former child athlete as well, we're a little biased at the table here when it comes to sport, but that's that's our thing, mm-hmm. right? That's It's a big part of who we are and what we are, and it has so much to offer children in terms of their development. So why can't sport, organized sport participation, really be a solution to everything that's happening from a public health perspective worldwide in terms of physical inactivity and what was once adult onset um, chronic conditions that are now, you know, being diagnosed in pediatric populations like overweight, um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, things like that. So for me, that was really the impetus. And there was a lot of literature that really said 100%, right? Reason why kids play, it's fun. Reason why they drop out, it's not fun. So why isn't there some sort of guiding conceptual framework or something that coaches can use? We've really, I think as scientists up until now, have left them with their hands tied, so to speak. You know, we always say it's got to be fun. And organizations and programs, you know, you, you look at their websites and, you know, they all promise that type of experience for children. But it's interesting because when you ask them, well, what do you do to intentionally foster that and create that experience for children, that motivational climate? They don't have much of a response, right? Um, but that makes sense. Um, fun is, is kind of this thing that I think a lot of times coaches, they like hope it happens not that there's like an intentionality behind it it sounds sounds very much like fun like air we know it's quite important right but it's like really hard to or love what mm-hmm. is it's quite quite important but you can't really like touch it or right. you're not really sure it, it's, it's bound it's important and it's mm-hmm. bound to be there and and so like it bounds the world together but we don't know anything what it was really about it's quite right. strange that that anyone hasn't looked more closely at fun before isn't yeah it? yeah somebody else asked me that the other day and i you know why do you think and i was like i don't know hmm. i guess maybe i'm glad they didn't so that i could <laughs> <laughs> were, selfishly like um during the 80s wasn't there some like sports enjoyment and stuff like that uh, susan yeah. jackson in australia yep. and uh, they looked uh, at it but it was quite shallow uh, but uh I think yeah, that started think, um, the, commun- uh, the, the the discussion about having yeah. fun and so on. I think Tara Scanlon as well yeah, Scanlon, um, yeah. over in the U.S. Yeah. had done a lot of work around the sport commitment model. And yeah. even that particular model, it identified enjoyment, fun as being, you know, the primary determinant. But um, I don't think it went much further than that. And being a scientist practitioner, I... I enjoy science, I appreciate science, but as a practitioner, I want to know, like, like, how do I do that? And you took the big step asking the kids. Yeah, giving them a voice, right? Giving the kids idea. a voice. I, I love that uh, during the speech today as well. And yeah. I think that's a really important step to giving kids a voice. And what uh, did you come up with, or they? Yeah, right? They did. Hmm. They did. I think that... Um, that really underscores the the power of the particular research approach that we took was really to put everything in the hands of the kids 
Um, we were, as a research team, just merely facilitators of the data that they were generating. And what we found was that fun, as Magnus was just saying before, you know, it's like, can we touch? You can't really touch it. It's like this abstract thing, but you can feel it, right? Um, they did a tremendous job of being able to identify 81 very specific actions and behaviors that we call fun determinants. They did an even better job at being able to conceptualize that for us, right, as the research team, as, you know, coaches, as consumers um, of the science. And they were, they essentially organized those 80, 81 fun determinants into 11 specific fun factors. And then they also quantified all of that data for us and told us, you know, basically this is what is most important to us as kids. And this is, is important, but not as important among the 81. And so as a former coach myself, um, I think that's huge in terms of then knowing, okay, now, like now I know what to focus on and, and how to do it. Um, and I think a lot of times research sort of misses the mark in that way. It's like we do research to confirm or affirm something um, or to understand sort of mechanistically how something works or if something's related to something else. But I think for there to be more evidence-informed practice, we as scientists have to do a better job at helping the consumers that we want to use the science to be able to translate it into what they do. Mm-hmm. And the the concept mapping approach that we took, I think, lends itself very nicely to that. Mm. And the mapping approach gave you like four clusters or or four, four uh, groups? So it, it was... So the 81 fun determinants, they're organized into those 11 fun factors. And those 11 fun factors represent four sort of overarching sources of fun. So there's the the internal, you know, source from within the child. There is the social component. There's the external component. So you think about the role of not just parents, but coaches, officials, um, spectators at youth sport events as well. And then finally, the, the fourth is the context in which all of those things happen, right? And we talk about organized sport. Organized sport is all about, you know, skill development and competitive play. And that's games and practices. So one of the ways that we sort of I think metaphorically talk about the fun maps is it's this really nice, tight, 360-degree app Mm. of what is fun in youth sport and helps us to decipher what's most important and what is not important. What what is the top three? Yeah, but we are going to put up the map at our website. So so you can uh, take a look at it uh, all yeah, all of yeah. you that are interested, because there are so many things there, and it's it's fantastic to look at. Yeah, nice. and we can't go through it all here, but <laughs> <laughs> we can we can find some we can parts find of it the, and talk about some parts of it. Three yeah, yes, ones were perhaps not so mm. not so unexpected, or were, were were you and your team uh, surprised by the top three candidates? Not at all, right? I mean, we're 
as sports scientists, we're all athletes, former athletes, right? So when you look at it and you see that all the determinants of trying hard, so everything related to effort, competing really hard, um, staying active, moving, getting touches on the ball, all of those types of things, followed by positive team dynamics, like that inherently makes sense when you're talking about, you know, as a child athlete participating in a team sport, right? You want to be connected to your teammates. You want to be supported. You want to uh, perform in a way, you know, on the field or on the ice in terms of coordinated effort. And in order to do those things, trying hard and positive team dynamics, you really need to have a coach that is exhibits positive coaching behavior that fosters fun. And so those are the top three. So it's not it's not surprising to us. And this yeah. relates very well to self-determination theory, for example, yeah. and other, uh, of the, uh, several of others of those uh, yeah. motivational theories. Uh, so it, it's not surprising at all. And uh, if you look at kids and elite athletes, right. yeah. <laughs> it, it fits very well. Yeah. It doesn't discriminate against age, right? I, and I think that's, the, that's, that's something that um, I think people either lose sight of or just don't realize that what's going to motivate you... Uh, you know, as a young child, it's it's still the same things, the same core things. And we also talked about gender before, so yeah, yeah. I sure. mean, one one aspect is is what do the the work you did? What yeah. myth did you so like debunk with your work? Was yeah. it any? Have, have you a feeling that during your talk today, I had a feeling that there were some myth out there yeah. that your work so like debunked? Yeah, several, right? Um, one being, you know, the gender and sex myth that what is fun for girls is is different or is all about friends and being with their friends. Whereas, you know, the guys, they're the ones that are really focused on learning and improving and competing. Baloney, right? Mm-hmm. Um, That's his favorite shows. word, baloney. Right? baloney. <laughs> is that an American word, baloney? Or is it? I think it's based on Carl Sagan's phrase. There's a, there's a lot of baloney out there. Yeah, okay. And the baloney detection kit. Okay. That we'll be talking about in this part before. So baloney, <gasps> yes. There's a lot of baloney out there. You know, the other one that really stands out too is that if you, if you want to be a high-performing athlete or if you're a coach that's coaching kids to be very high performing at elite level that fun is not an integral component of that that that's where you go to really be serious and really train and focus right but if you want to have fun you go play the the rec league the all-inclusive everyone plays everyone gets playing time sort of thing and I think one of the things that, that's helpful for me in doing coaching clinics and working with high-performing coaches is to get them to understand that there's there's other data out there, right? So as a scientist, I like to point to the data. Um, and if they can show me data as well that, you know, refutes that, then that's fair. They usually don't have any. Um. Surprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but I know a guy, you know, <laughs> right, right. But so, so one of the things that I point out with that particular misconception between different competition levels for kids is that when you look at the USOC, they did a number of retrospective studies um, of athletes across various different quadrenniums, 
And the first question that they asked them was, why did you get involved in sport? Like any sport that you played. And they list all the different reasons and fun is always up near the top. And then the second question they asked them is, what motivated you to pursue your sport at the highest level possible? And fun, again, is up near the top. Mm. A lot of times fun gets a bad rap in, in, in the idea that people think that when kids are having fun, that that's something that you use like at the end of a practice. If they've been good and they've trained hard, then we'll, we'll use the last 10 minutes and they can have fun. That's that's the, like the you know? the yeah. reward for doing the seriousness right. stuff. This right. Is, yeah, this is so right. crazy. Right. <laughs> but you know, if you're going to pursue anything with heart and passion in life, whether it's education or it's a hobby, a leisure time activity, a career pursuit, you know, if you're if you're going to really go for that, it, it's it's got to be fun. It has to be something mm. that that you really truly enjoy, if not fall in love with. Um, and that's what we want more kids to do, right? Is to to fall in love with the game. Mm. But taking a criti- critical stance on this, um, I no. mean, if, if you... <laughs> <laughs> you're if, not allowed. But if, but if you're asking... <laughs> the if only asking non-researcher kids. in the room takes a critical stance <laughs> at the researchers. I'm pretty sure I'm comfortable can, with this. Can you sit down now, please? <laughs> Um, but if you ask kids, yeah. you will probably get answers that mirrors the coaches or the or the grown-ups around them. Did you notice that in your research, or do you? What do you say about that? I've seen both, actually. Um, I think coaches that are really introspective, right, and they think back. Okay, as a kid, as a child athlete what made it the most fun for me. And then you have coaches that are just completely surprised that trying hard and giving good effort and competing really hard, like that that's fun. And they're like, whoa. Hmm. You know, like when I push them hard, like, like, well, think about it. If you're, if you're an athlete, you know, whatever level that you play at and You're there because you love the game and you want to get better. That's what you're looking for in a coach, right? A coach that can do that. Um, You're not looking to goof off and sort of be silly. That's not what brought you to the field. Learning and learning is also an important motivational factor, of course. And then you have to fight. A hundred percent, right? A hundred percent. And so what we've found from the fun maps data so far in terms of sort of the rank order of importance, you know, trying hard is number one, number two is positive team dynamics, number three is positive coaching. Right after that is learning and improving, number four. I think practically speaking, for a coach, they could certainly be overwhelmed by the idea that there's 81 fun determinants, right? And they're like, where do I start, right? So if we can get them to just focus on those top three factors, right, that identify 28 specific actions and behaviors, then it appears then that the domino effect of the other factors, they just sort of fall in place. If you can do the top three, learning and improving will occur. All of the other things sort of come to as a result of the top three. 
So, yeah. You, yeah, so you shouldn't focus on, on uh, winning and competing. <laughs> on that note, yeah. it's like you have you have like disentangled, taken together like puzzle. You have mapped fun, right. which, which is is amazing from any standard. Yeah. Uh, and then the question is, I just got a got in a question of, of of I'm curious about what's the opposite of fun. What's what can you make a map of unfun? What's terrible about terrible in sports? Unfun. He's like unfun. What's the <laughs> is unfun? That a of, that's like <laughs> what's terrible? I mean, terrible. I mean, boring might be the opposite yeah. of fun word, but let's say terrible. What's terrible about terrible in sports? Can you right. do like a terrible map of sports? Yeah. You mentioned something about in your speech that yeah, you have also the darker yeah, mapping. The darker, side. the yeah. darker map, the, darker the dark map. side. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so. It's interesting, right? So if you if you think about like self-determination theory, right? Along that self-determination continuum, um, you know, you have intrinsic motivation on one end and then all the way at the other end, you have a motivation, right? So if you think about what is fun, the inherent, I think, natural question is what is not fun? Or if you're Magnus, it's what is unfun. Unfun. <laughs> the outlier, unfun. Yeah, yeah. unfun. Um, maybe that's the, the Swedish... It must be. Defun or unfun, you can choose. Defun. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one before, too. Yeah, so um, we did do that. Um, in the second year of our funding for the research, We that's exactly what we did, is we mapped all of the barriers to fun, you know, everything that impedes a child athlete's experience with fun. And what what is, I think, really interesting is that there's – 81 specific determinants of fun and 91 things that impede a child's fun hmm. or unfun things. Mm. So <laughs> unfun beats unfun. fun. <laughs> and what are the, are the most critical unfun things? Ooh. So un- I think unsurprisingly. Top three. <laughs> um, up there is uh, unwanted parent behavior. That's the like that's the number one thing. Mm. In some of the conversations that I've had with that, you know, people aren't surprised. But they're like, oh, now there's evidence, now that we have science, you know, that we can show parents how they're taking away um, from not just their child's experience, but every child's experience mm. out on the field. Close close up there too are I think what we've called for right now is ineffective coaching. And it, it's interesting because when you when you look at all of those 91 determinants, such a, such a large proportion of those are negative coaching behaviors. For sure. Is that data published or is it on, on, it's, on its way? It's on its way. On its way. It's on its way. Um, Especially when it's when it's the best science, not when it's out there. It's when it's on its way. It's almost published. <laughs> <laughs> the mystery still is there. Right, right. I can appreciate that. I'm going to go with that. Actually, yeah, yeah. So that that data will be forthcoming. Um, I've only shared it in a very limited capacity. I think because it is unpublished right now. Um, but when it's interesting because when youth sport organizations, um, when I have shared that there is that data, they wanted it yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's like, I feel like 
when that data comes out, that will give them the impetus for um, being able to inform a lot of the, whether it's coaching standards or mm. parent sideline behavior standards, codes of conduct, things like that. And that's, I think, is an important part as well. Um, and just talking about parents' behaviors yeah. and, and also coaching behaviors, of course. Uh, do you see any cultural di differences? Have you checked for that? Or have you been over to Europe and and done some some data? We haven't. We're still waiting for the Europeans to give us money to do that. You should You're talk waiting to for the Europeans <laughs> to give you money. Or the Norwegian countries, too. We'll take... Oh yeah, go, we'll go to Norway, that. take their money. I think that's the best thing because we don't have very much money here. Or bring your own. <laughs> yeah, no, but that that's one of the questions that we get. Um, and interestingly, sitting down and, and working for a long time with Swedish ice hockey yesterday and having everyone around the table and looking at the data and it's like, is it that different here in Sweden? Um, it doesn't sound like it would be all that different but i don't know what do you guys think do we have yeah that, that's a question it's a great question you had you i almost never give compliment to you so i do that now yeah. but it's a great question for once <laughs> <laughs> the first time i think was a great question anyway that actually something that struck me how transferable yeah. are these results do we have any reason to assume that the result is not going to be the same in sweden or norway for, the, for that sake or yeah. in different sports than soccer because I'm not really sure if you mentioned, but this is based in in, in, in soccer. That that's that's it a sport. is, yeah. and I I think I forgot to mention um, during the keynote earlier that for the sample that we had in soccer, seventy five point five percent of those kids played other sports as well, okay. and so you can appreciate um, with science, it's impossible to design the perfect study. Every study is going to have its limitations, and so. We knew that given the rigor of the type of methodology we were using, we had to make really strong community partners because we were going to have to come back time and again to get more data from these kids to build these maps. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that, it was helpful in that regard um, to use soccer just because there's a high concentration it is one of the most socioeconomically accessible sports for all children. Um, and for us, I think it was important, too, because it's a sport that's played by both girls and boys. One of the ways in which we tried to overcome the limitation of recruiting only from soccer was we would ask the kids all the time, you know, at the brainstorming stage when they were identifying all of the, all of the things that make playing sport fun is, what else do you play? Like... You're here because you're here today because you play soccer, but what else do you play or have you played in the past? And they'd say, well, ice hockey or basketball, or I would do girls on the run, or I did track or I did tennis, you know, all of those different things. And so we said, when you're brainstorming, we want you to think about all of your sport experiences. We don't want it to just be germane to soccer. Um, and so, and, and they did a really good job of doing that. And so through the content analysis of all of those different ideas, we were able to ensure that they were generalizable and they weren't things that were just specific to soccer. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the um, the three top components, as we mentioned before, like trying hard, positive team yeah. dynamics and, and uh, positive coaching, I don't think there's any reason to assume that there, if you 
took another sport or another culture that yeah. it's going to pop up three absolutely different in yeah. another sport some will say well i like 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 beating the crap out of my opponent that's the most fun i don't <laughs> think that would happen i mean most probably these will generalize yeah. to other contexts yeah yeah well, you know, it's like it goes back to sort of that outcome component, like where coaches always want to know, well, where's winning? I know uh, it's got to be up there and it's got to be high. Right. And so we said, well, where do you think it is? You know, and everyone sort of throws out a guess. It's usually somewhere in the top 20, I would say 15 to 20. We said, well, it's interesting. Right. It actually ranks number 48. Which yeah. means then that there are 47 other things that are more important or at least that were rated higher than winning um and they're usually surprised and they say well think about it right like look at look at the map winning is the only outcome determinant on here and it's not an outcome that you're in control of completely not in a team sport right you can't can you can't control your opponent you can only prepare the best you can um for every play and every Trying strategy. Hard. Right, right. Yeah. I think that that brings the attention back to the process. Everyone's so focused on the outcome, they lose sight of how they actually get there. And it's like if you can just focus on those top three fun factors, those 28 you know, fun determinants, then you set your kids up, you set your athletes and your team up for a higher probability of winning. But I think that's, that's a really powerful message to be so like thrown out there and to be put out clearly to the parents yeah winning is number da -da 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 -da. yeah uh, 48 <laughs> like, i need what? to start saying it just what? like that too. yeah 48 yeah there's like 47 effect. other reasons yeah. to do other stuff before winning if you if we ask the kids themselves right if we don't ask so like the parents around you if you ask the kids winning is number 48 Right. And we don't have any reason to believe that it's going to be different. Although, as you right. say, this is one study and blah, 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 all the things we always have to write in the discussion part that we need to be right. careful and stuff. <laughs> the limitations We should be limitations. We, we need to have there. Yeah. But still, there's no reason to believe why this shouldn't be applied to other settings as right. well. And winning is, is far below. So I think it's a really powerful, even though people have some idea of that winning is not so important, I think it's, it's having it so clear right package as, as yeah. you do when you, when you, when you sure. work it's really powerful way to, to putting it out there but then then again if you step into uh, academy as they call yeah. things in soccer in, in Europe and yep. uh, you have all these kids that are amazing for their age 8, yep. 10, 12 years old do you think they have a different opinion about winning mm. than the kids that are playing in a, like a normal uh, soccer club I think it plays a different role in terms of the pressure that they have in their experience, but I don't think that it I, I don't think that it plays a greater role in terms of their you know, how much fun they have in the process. Elite youth sport in that regard creates a different type of pressure, um, an environment in that way. But I don't think that ultimately it's Relative to fun, I you know, I don't think that it, it's, it's that different. Yeah, I would actually I would actually suspect that the unfun map yeah. might be different in such extreme environments like in academics uh, and stuff. It might be that the fun is still okay, but the unfun one, the maps will still be a bit different. Uh, well, I'm, pressure yeah. to play 
or pressure to win put on them by parents and coaches are on the not fun maps. Hundred percent, yeah. And that that's when I mean I I mean that uh, the parents around or the 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 adults Mm -hmm. around the kids will influence the kids. Uh, opinion on what's fun uh, over time oh sure yeah and that's why there's a danger in those elite academy whatever mm-hmm. you call it uh, environments that you have to be aware of when you build them sure and then yeah. build in some control system yeah. for keeping the fun yeah. for the kids not only focusing yeah. on it can be yeah. a healthy environment yeah. it can yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously, yeah. yeah. I mean, I really like the idea you used fun maps as blueprints. Yeah. There were blueprints. I mean, if you think about how to build an environment around right. the kids, it's, it's a really nice idea to have when you build a house, you need a blueprint first. Exactly. So if you build an environment, you need this on this fun map. Right. Blueprint is a really, really good start when you build the foundation of right. whatever organization you try to do. So uh, concluding concluding yeah we feel uh, jamie our producer's spirit is all around here he says he tells us He's that we like, need to time. wrap up now yeah it's yeah. time yeah. so what, what what can we take from this discussion and uh, and tell the coaches and around in sweden so that we can beat you in every sport we ever can imagine we're going to everybody's going to be having fun in sweden right we're it's gonna not going to be any elite no more olympic gold medals because we have only fun here in Sweden. No, we're, ah, we're going no, to beat you right? have fun. Right, but I would say, right, that fun is synonymous with achievement, right, with high performance. So Thank you. I would say if you have too much fun here, then we might need to watch out as Americans. So right? what, are, what are we telling the coaches and, and parents around Sweden? My advice is, is really to l- listen to your children, right, listen as a parent and listen to your child athlete. Um, and be very intentional in your own actions and behaviors in the sport context, just like you would in any other. You pick your kid up from practice, ask them, what was fun? Did you have fun? What was fun about it? If it's if you're picking your kid up from a game, the first question out of a parent's mouth shouldn't be, did you win? There are subtle things like that that then send the message to the child that that's what's most important. It's not how I played. Or, or what the match was like, the competition was like, it's the outcome of the game. And I think that's where, you know, the youth sport culture has unfortunately become a little bit more professionalized in that way. Um, and it's not about as much of the high quality experience, but it's just wins versus losses. And I, that's, that's really unfortunate because if we're going to keep kids in the game, um, and whether you're talking about Olympic level, professional level sports, if you want to have a greater pool of talent to pull from, you have to make sure that the experiences that kids have all along the way are fun. And I think you put it nicely today. Also, you can use the fun map when you're building your uh, environment, kids environment in your club. Yeah. When you're working, look at the fun map at at your own club. No, at Wag the Dog. <laughs> Wag the Dog pod dot <laughs> Oh my God. Well, at least we had, we, we could pick together the fun we had here in 81 yeah. different categories. It's been a blast so. having you here. It's been really, really fun to have this it's discussion. Been fun, yeah. yeah. Really yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you very much for coming Thank here. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah.